whether we like it or not, the world we live in has changed a great deal in the last hundred years, and it is likely to change even more in the next hundred. Hello everyone, I'm Petra Vernon, and thanks for joining me here on uh, Mostly Essays. Today we're going to look on the sci-fi uh, realm of things looking at uh, Stephen Hawking's Black Holes and Baby universes, universes and other essays. Stephen Hawking has been uh, described as a, a rigorous and imaginative thinker, uh, a, a concerned world citizen, a person who was uh, severely disabled by ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. He um, uses his characteristic of mastery of language, sense of humor, and a commitment to plain speaking. He disdained pompousness and invites us in his book to, sh to know him better and to share his passion for his voyage of intellect and imagination that has opened new ways to understanding the very nature of the universe. If you could try to read his bestseller, phenomenal bestseller. It was on the New York Times best list for over a hundred weeks. It was, yeah, bestseller for over a hundred weeks and sold more than five million copies and it's been translated into 33 languages. So not only his collection of essays here, but try to read his uh, A Brief History of Time, A Reader's Companion and um, We'll now have a look at his essay, which will help us to understand the great unfolding mystery of the universe as a backdrop and how science theory converges with and diverges from science fiction, as well as how science fact interfaces with our own lives. So we'll have a look at his chapter four, Public Attitudes Towards Science in his collection of essays entitled Black Holes and Baby Universes and other essays. So whether we like it or not, right, the world we live in has changed a great deal in the last hundred years, and it's, it is likely to change even more in the next hundred. Some people would start to like to stop these changes and to go back to what they see as a purer and simpler age. But as history shows, the past was not that wonderful. It was not so bad for a privileged minority, though even they had to do without modern medicine and childbirth was highly risky for women. But for the vast majority of the population, life was nasty, brutish and short. Anyway, even if one wanted to, one couldn't put the clock back to an earlier age. Knowledge and techniques can't just be forgotten nor can one prevent further advances in the future. Even if all the government money for research were cut off and the present government is doing its best, the force of comp competition would still bring about advances, would still bring about advances in technology. Moreover, one cannot stop inquiring minds from thinking about basic science. Whether or not they are paid for it, the only way to prevent further developments would be a global totalitarian state that suppress anything new and human initiative and ingenuity are such that even this wouldn't succeed. All it would do is slow down the rate of change. 
if we accept that we cannot prevent science and technology from changing our world, we can at least try to ensure that the changes they make are in the right directions. In a democratic society, this means that the public needs to have a basic understanding of science so that it can make informed decisions and not leave them in the hands of experts. At the moment, the public has a rather ambivalent attitude towards science. It has come to expect the steady increase in the standard of living that new developments of science and technology have brought to continue. But it also distrusts us. It distrusts science because it does not understand it. This distrust is evident in the cartoon figure of the mad scientist working in his laboratory to produce a Frankenstein. It's also an important element behind support for the Green Parties. But the public also has a great interest in science, particularly astronomy, as is shown by the large audiences, audiences for television series such as Cosmos for, and for science fiction. What can be done to harness this interest and give the public the scientific background it needs to make informed decisions on subjects like acid rain, the greenhouse effect, nuclear weapons, and genetic engineering? Clearly, the basis must lie in what is taught in schools, but in schools, science is often presented in a dry and uninterested manner. Children learn it by route to pass examinations, and they don't see its relevance to the world around them. Moreover, science is often taught in terms of equations, and although equations are a concise and accurate way of describing mathematical ideas, they frighten most people. When I wrote a popular book recently, I was advised that each equation I included would have the sales. I included one equation, Einstein's favorite equation, E equals MC square. Maybe I would have sold twice as many copies without it. Scientists and engineers tend to express their ideas in the form of equations because they need to know the precise values of quantities. But for the rest of us, a qualitative grasp of scientific concepts is sufficient and this can be conveyed by words and diagrams without the use of equations. The science people learn in schools can provide the basic framework only, but the rate of scientific progress is now so rapid that there are always new developments that have occurred since when it was, in, when it was at school or university. I never learned about monocular biology or transistors at school, but genetic engineering and, um, and computers are two of the developments most likely to change the way we live in the future. Popular books and magazine articles about science can help to put across new developments. But even the most successful popular book is read by only a small proportion of the population. Only television can reach a truly mass audience. There are some very good science programs on TV, but others present scientific wonders simply as magic, without explaining them or showing them how they fit the framework of scientific ideas. Producers of television science programs should realize that they have a responsibility to educate the public, not just entertain it. What are the science-related issues that the public will have to make decisions on in the near future? By far the most urgent is that of nuclear weapons. Other global problems such as food supply or the greenhouse effect are relatively slow acting. But a nuclear war would mean the end of all human life on Earth within days. The relaxation of the East-West tensions brought about by the ending of the Cold War has meant that the fear of nuclear war has receded from public consciousness. But the danger is still there as long as there are enough weapons to kill the entire population of the world many times over. 
In former Soviet and Soviet states and in America, nuclear weapons were still poised to strike all the major cities in the Northern Hemisphere. It would only take a computer error on a mutiny by some of those men in the weapons to trigger global war. It is even more worrying that relatively minor powers are now acquiring nuclear weapons. The danger is not so much in the actual nuclear weapons that such powers may soon possess, which would be fairly rud rudimentary, though they would still kill mil millions of people. Rather, the danger is that a nuclear war between two minor powers would draw in the major powers with their enormous, enormous arsenals. It's very important that the public realize the dangers but and put pressure on all governments to agree to large arm cuts. It probably is not practical to remove nuclear weapons entirely, but we can lessen the danger by reducing the number of weapons. If we manage to avoid a nuclear war, there are still other dangers that could destroy us all. There's a sick joke that the reason we have not been contacted by an alien civilization is that civilizations tend to destroy themselves when they reach our stage. But I have sufficient faith in the good, in the good sense of the public to believe that we might prove this wrong.